Let me pray, and we'll get into Haggai chapter 2. Father, we come before you this morning, uh, some of us full of joy with what you are doing in our lives, and others of us uh, barely making it in here this morning. And so we all come once again longing for you to be with us. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you, especially right now through your living word, that Holy Spirit, you would take it, that you would be the wonderful counselor that you are and be the helper to our souls by elevating the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ high for all of us to see this morning. Holy Spirit, thank you that even as we heard in that text, as Brock read it, you remain in our midst. We are not to fear. And so, Lord, for those who might be afraid, who are anxious, who are worried about the circumstances of this life, would you calm those and cease those fears this morning? And above all, Lord, would you help us to leave here a people confident that whether things are going well or things seem to be falling apart, you are the God that is with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as I was preparing this this sermon for our church, uh, we we have one service, right? So it's uh, it was a little easier to do this with you guys with two services. When you hear my introduction, you might giggle a little bit because I, I talk about younger people and I talk about older people. Uh, I had to try to make that work in the first service; it was a little bit more more difficult. Uh, but man, I love that first service. I love those older saints, man. They are an encouragement, but. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here with you guys, and I hope Haggai, you'll see, is for all of us. So uh, as, I, as I was preparing this, I was, I was thinking about years in ministry and just years in life in general. And as we observe younger people, and I know some of you, and you'll probably include me in that, that category, uh, younger people often look to the future with these big, bright ideas of hopes and dreams coming true, right? We're we're told we can accomplish anything if we just put our minds to it. Whereas the older you get, realism can start to kick in after youthful dreams and hopes die and are oftentimes buried once and for all. Now, this can cause older folks or the older we get to kind of look back at the younger years as this sort of idealistic golden age of what once was, right? And it could cause the, the older folks or the younger folks to look forward into what could one day be. And so this often creates a community of different ages, different kinds of people together who differ in age and experience, some looking backwards to the glory days with others looking forward to this bright, idealistic future. Now, this can leave a lot of us wondering What about the present? Or even more so, where is God in the present? Now, these same ideas were present in Haggai's day. In Haggai chapter 1, I don't have time to expand on the whole thing, but in short, God has come to these people who he has sent out of exile back to their homeland, and they're excited to be home, but rather than fulfilling the call God gave them to rebuild the temple, 
we see that they've put all their money, all their time, all their affections into remodeling their houses. And actually, he uses a lot of these Hebrew verbs and connecting all these words that the same paneling that was once on Solomon's great and glorious temple, they have brought into their homes. And he comes and he says, consider your ways. These people who should be about the glory of God and rebuilding his temple have really just built their homes. And so God confronts them. And by the end of Haggai chapter one, they repent and they start to return to the work of rebuilding the temple. Well, Haggai chapter 2, it takes us into the reality of what once was, what is in the present, and what will one day be. It's a very special chapter because, in a sense, you're getting past, present, future wrapped in to one big text. Now, let's look at verse 1 to start. The Lord speaking through Haggai says, see, there's the glory. This happened in the first service. It was all my words. It was like, damn, and then... Haggai 2, what glory. So just listen when I speak the Bible. Everything else, you can just plug yours. Uh, Haggai 2, 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by that hand of Haggai the prophet. Now, most of us, if we're doing our devotions, we'll kind of read right past that, right? Oh, there's some months or some days. Like, what's the point? But as a Jewish man or woman that would have heard this from Haggai, this would have opened your mind to something very important that happened in the past. Now, we're not going to catch it originally, so I'm going to take you back into the book of Leviticus to kind of color in these dates that Haggai is mentioning. If you look with me at Leviticus 23, he explains this festival that he would want his people to start celebrating year after year, called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23, 33-36 says it this way. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. We're like, yeah, I could get behind that. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. In short, God is instituting this week-long party. And what they would do is they would leave their homes. They'd go out into the wilderness. They'd build these temporary shelters and they would feast all week long. And it was driven by remembering God's radical exodus, where he came in and did all these amazing works to deliver them out of slavery to Egypt into his loving care and provision. And God is doing this to say, I want you to not forget what once was, that I am the Lord who is with you and has delivered you. Now... In one sense, they're sitting there out in the open, remembering the glory days, right? Retracing all the good that God had once did. So when Haggai starts to deliver this message from God in chapter 2, God's people are at the end of this feast, and they're all just sitting there full bellies, happy, resting, not doing any ordinary work. Reliving the glory days, telling the stories of God's great redemption. 
And Haggai comes in verses 2 through 3, and he says this. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Talking about Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? As this mixed community of older saints and younger saints are gathered together celebrating, there's some older folks who had actually before the exile seen Solomon's temple. These folks are old, right? Because they were in exile 70 years. So these are people who actually got to see this great glorious temple with their eyes. Mixed with these other people celebrating the Exodus who were born in exile who never saw the temple in all of its glory. And Haggai begins to compare the glory of the two temples. Now in Haggai chapter 1, he had come and confronted them, as I said, for not rebuilding this temple, the new one. But the question God is posing through Haggai is whether or not the glory of the first temple is present in this new one. Well, the good news is, if it was... Oh man, see, I start to talk and it's like, just keep reading the Bible, dude. Uh, if, if we had no other scripture, we'd be unclear on some of the responses here, but the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, it's like flashing, I feel like I got it, you know. Uh, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra are contemporaries, right? So we should look to those to see if we can get answers. Well, if we look at Ezra 3, 12 through 13, we see that the answer to God's question about whether the glory is present in this new temple as it was in Solomon's, we get the actual answer. We get help here. Ezra 3, 12 and 13 says it this way. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, right, Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, the new temple. Though many shouted aloud for joy, right? That's all the idealistic young bucks who are like, man, this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So here's what Haggai is getting at. The older people of God are absolutely broken because the truth of the matter is this new temple, the glory doesn't even clo get close to that of Solomon's. Basically, you can look at Solomon's temple. It's beautiful. It took decades to build and it's amazing. God was there doing all these things. And you look over here and you got like a cement foundation with some like chopped up wood and it's unfinished and just ugly. And you have the younger people so excited. Man, God's going to do a great work. This is amazing. And you got the older folks who are just a little bit more realistic. You know? Like, I'm just crying. <laughs> That's an embarrassment to God and to our people. Just isn't what it once was. And we can hear that in the discouragement and the tears of the older saints. You see, they long for the days where God was showing Himself powerfully through bringing His people out of Egypt. 
They longed for the day when God brought fire down into the temple of Solomon, consuming their sacrifices, showing that God was pleased with them. And as they look at this new temple, if they were to summarize it all up in one phrase, it is, God is absent. How could God be present and leave His new temple that He's commanded them to build in shambles? As they sit there celebrating the glory days during this Feast of Tabernacles, it seems that the days of God's glory and His presence are a thing of the past. The question is, can you guys relate with them? Can you relate with these people who are broken about the days that once were? Do you look at the current state of your life and long for things to be the way that they once were? Those days when God first saved you and you had this zeal for Him and this sense of His presence that seems like such a rare thing these days? Do you look back to the days when your body worked without waking up in pain? Maybe for some of you it's looking back to those days when you weren't lying awake at night, retracing all your mistakes and failures, wishing you can go back and change those. Maybe for some of you, it's life with little kids, remembering where maybe you don't sleep because of failures, but you don't sleep because your kids don't let you. Thinking, what would it be like again to sleep without being woken up? Maybe some of you are just like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, constantly stuck on the days when you can throw the pigskin a quarter mile. Whatever it is, you're not alone. You see, the people of God in Haggai's day, they longed for those former days where God's glory was tangible and where it was near. Well, God in His grace, He doesn't leave them there in this discouragement. No, He has something to say to these people whose heads are low and their spirits even lower. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I love this because God is stepping in at the moment where the people of God are about to give up. Right? They're looking back at the glory days. They're, they're weeping. Things aren't the way they wish they were. And He hears and He sees their discouragement even in the midst of them caring about their own houses more than rebuilding the temple. And He comes and He has something to say. He's determined to be with them. He's determined to comfort them, but still keep them on track to complete the mission He called them to. I think we learn a couple things here about God that might correct us in some ways at times. right? We like to pick and choose the attributes of God we like. Or we like to choose the gospel and forsake the law. We like to choose what best 
suits us, and that's what the people in Haggai's day were doing. You see, he doesn't come and just coddle them and say, man, it was a real bummer that you didn't build the temple, but guess what? I love you. Just go back to your houses and keep building them up, because guess what? I'm going to send my son to die. Just keep at it. But he's also not a harsh taskmaster like the, those in slavery in e- that had him in slavery in Egypt who says, just complete the mission. I don't care for you. Right? Just do what I told you to do. He's not just one side or the other. He's all of these things wrapped together. He cares for them. He loves them. And he's going to be with them in the mission he called them to complete. And he comes down to them in their sadness to encourage them to move forward. And his message that he repeats three times is to be strong. Right? This This command gives us the understanding that they're not at that point strong. They're weak. And many of us come into God's household today. Many of us have to go back out to the world and we feel like we just don't have it in us. We're tired. We're overwhelmed. We fail. We mess up. And he's coming and he's saying this command to be strong that I repeat three times is a community effort. Because none of us, none of you have it within yourself, right? He says, be strong, O Zerubbabel, a governor king type figure. Be strong, O Joshua, a high priest. And then be strong, O all of you, right? Saints of the land. He's saying, you're not meant to do this on your own. There's a time for tears. The temple is clearly not what it's supposed to be, and it's not what it once was. But God is coming, He's wiping their tears, and He's saying it's time to be strong and get back to work. That's why He commands them to work. But we must see the the motivation, the main push to be strong underneath this idea to get back to work is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. And it's the reality that God is with them. You see, the great promise, the great theme from Genesis to Revelation is that I will be your God and you will be my people for I am with you. And he's reminding them once again, the glory days were not just the exodus. I am with you now. But interestingly enough, he's going to use a grip of imagery from Exodus right now. Haggai's going to bring in all this imagery from Exodus to help them in the present know that he is with them in their work. This language for I am with you in verse 4, as well as the language in verse 5, according to the covenant I made with you, both come from a pretty shocking scene in Exodus 32 through 34. If you're not familiar, God had saved his people by grace alone, out of Egypt. Right? He takes them to the Red Sea, he splits it, he saves his people, drowns all the enemies of God. And then he feeds them in the wilderness. He's with them, and we get this scene where they come to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up the hill. Moses is their mediator figure. He's their leader, and he goes up the mountain for 40 days. And he's going to receive the law of God, a law that was meant to, one, show them their need for him, but also to set 
boundaries of freedom that if they were to live in, they would live happily. And as Moses goes up there, the days start to go by and they get a little impatient. Now, when they left, Ex- or when they left Egypt, God had allowed them to take all the spoils, right? All the gold, all the silver. And rather than wait on Moses for 40 days, they break the first commandment to not worship any other God before the commandment's even given. <laughs> and they, it's the craziest scene. Glory. Uh, it's the craziest scene. They take all these spoils, all this gold, they melt it down, they form it into a golden calf, they drink a little too much, get naked, and start worshiping this calf. And you're thinking, this is wild. Like, the people of God who He has saved for Himself seems like within minutes are already worshiping another God. And now you might be sitting in your chair thinking, how ridiculous is that? Like, what kind of people do that? Well, let me just put it in comparison for a second. 40 days doesn't seem like that long. How many of you in here have been frustrated when Amazon Prime has delivered past the two-day mark. Right. So two days, 40 days, it looks like things are going downhill for all my all millennial friends, Mr. Cass. <laughs> uh, I love you, Joshua. In the midst of their rebellion, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, God comes and threatens to remove His presence from them. It looks like this mighty work of saving them out of slavery all of a sudden is just going to end quickly and end bad. Exodus 33:3, God says this, "Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." So he's basically like, "Go go for it. You go to the promised land, but you're going on your own." And if you know much about Israel, as many as they were in number, they wouldn't have made it. They were a weak people. But Moses pleads on behalf of the people in this same scene in Exodus 33, 14, that the Lord would be gracious and respond to them and go with them. And God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. You see, Haggai has all of this imagery in his mind and God is using him to show them not only will God go with them, but that He's going to renew the covenant that they broke. Listen to Exodus 34, 10 and 11. God says, Behold, I am making a covenant. And when God makes a covenant, He keeps it. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So you see, Haggai has Exodus 32 through 34 in mind. And he's saying, not only will God keep his promises to them, God is going to go with them. God's going to make a new covenant with them that he will keep. And he will send his Holy Spirit to go with them. And he's coming amongst the people and he has all of this wrapped up together. And in Haggai 2.5, the second part of verse 5, he says, My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So the question is, why is God using all this imagery 
in Haggai's day? What's the purpose of it? Well, let me sum up what he's doing here. The people of Haggai's day would have looked back on the Exodus story as if that was the greatest of times in their history. Even a rebellious time like the golden calf incident. And think of those time as the glory days. It was when God was speaking to their leader on a mountain. It was the time when God was present and renewing His covenant with them, even though they didn't deserve it. And it was a time where His Spirit went with them wherever they moved. And God is trying to tell the people in Haggai's day that the glory days are not just a thing of the past, but they are a thing of the present because God is with them. You see, Haggai's people, they they rebelled by not rebuilding the temple. But God is making absolutely clear that the covenant He made with their fathers in the wilderness is just as true for them on that day. So that covenant breakers in the Exodus story and covenant breakers here in Haggai and even covenant breakers like you and I today can be sure that God is the one who keeps His covenant. That He is the one who pays for all of our failures and gives us all the good that He promises, not on our works. But likewise, it also drives our work. So they need to be strong and get to work. And by His grace, He's saying all this. I love this idea. He's saying all these things, bringing all this Exodus imagery while they're sitting out in the wilderness in temporary shelters. How much more clear could it be that God's trying to make all these things known to them, that He is with them and that He keeps His covenant, while in a sense they're reenacting a drama of what once was. Through Haggai, he's coming to his people and he's saying, stop thinking about the glory days because I'm with you now. And the work I'm calling you to is a wonderful work because I'm with you. Enjoy it. God is coming to us today as well and is saying, I know you have all these memories from your past. I know the present times may seem hard. I know you have wounds and see the world through lenses that are tinted by cynicism. I know you are weary, but please listen to me. I am with you. Keep going. Don't give up. You see, in Fusion Church, God is not just the God of the past. We can't just look back and say, I would believe if God would just do what he did then. He is the God of the present who is calling us to build the church. And while it's full of people that are beat up and tired, anyone could come in here and see hypocrisy within a minute. We have to be honest about that. But God is the one that is with us, and He's building the church through a means, through a failing people. And He's saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we keep at it, and we work because the Spirit remains in our midst. Now, the reason we ought not feel so sentimental about the past, especially if it paralyzes us from moving forward in doing the good work of the Lord, this next passage in Haggai is going to be a reminder that what awaits us is far better than anything God ever did in the past. 
Look at Haggai 2, 6 through 9. God says this through Haggai. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, the reason God commanded them to fear not is because there is a future work He is going to do that will blow Solomon's temple completely out of the water. As amazing as that temple was, this future temple will be greater because it will be full with God's glory and will be a place of absolute and uninterrupted peace. Now this would have been a great comfort to God's people in Haggai's day. As they look at this junky temple, this foundation that wasn't built, and to know that way off in the distant future, somehow and somewhere and some way, that God would make it something that cannot be destroyed, that will be full of peace, that will be beautiful and covered with glory, would have moved their eyes off the present and into the future. You see, the hard part about Haggai's day that we learn in other texts, especially Nehemiah, is that, yes, God called them to rebuild this temple. But the Persians were surrounding them. They were being persecuted violently. Nehemiah uses this phrase of one hand they were building with the temple, and the other hand they were fighting off their enemies. What kind of temple is that? That's a hard temple to build when there isn't peace. And so God's moving their eyes forward to a place where both hands will be at rest as the glory of God surrounds the whole world. Now, of course, in Haggai's day, this would have had some immediately near implications for them. They wouldn't have known exactly what it meant. But we have the whole Bible, and as we trace this theme through Scripture, we see it finds its fullness in the new heavens and new earth. We find that God comes in the flesh, lives among His people, and then He comes again a second time, ruling over all of the cosmos. And He brings in a city where there is no need for a physical temple any longer because He Himself is that glorious One. And the point of Haggai 2, 1-9 through isn't even entirely about a temple. But it's about what the temple symbolizes which was always the presence and glory of God with His people. You see, this promise of the future, it's meant to help us see, same with Haggai's day, that the past isn't the glory days. God is with us in the present, and we look forward to what He's going to do in the future. You see, at Mount Sinai, Moses was the mediator who prayed for God to renew His covenant in their rebellion. God, in His grace, He heard and He answered. But the people of God wandering in the wilderness, many of them fell to their own sin and unbelief, proving that wasn't the glory days whatsoever. Look at Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. It says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You see, don't we do that a lot of times? We look back to the past and take the the good and kind of forget the wicked that was present with it. We kind of idealize even the past at times. And the author of Hebrews is coming to an audience of those who had primarily converted from Judaism to Christianity and were being tempted to go back because of persecution. In the same as Haggai's day, while they're trying to rebuild the temple and fight off enemies with the sword, these people in the Hebrews church are, in a sense, paying for their faith. They're trying to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're tempted to go back to the glory days of Judaism, where they could just go to the temple down the street, offer their sacrifices, and be accepted in their community. So the author takes Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9, plants it towards the end of his letter in Hebrews chapter 12, and gives it an implication for the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, and it has implications for us today. And as we get to it, the context of that Hebrews 12 use of Haggai is very important. In Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, he tells the Hebrew Christians that they have not come to Mount Sinai. He says this because Mount Sinai was, in a sense, this symbol of the glory days. It was where God was present with His people, where He gave the law. And yet, the thing about Mount Sinai, if we read the original account, if you came to Mount Sinai that day, when Moses was up on the mountain, if you got near and even touched the mountain, you would fall dead. It was a terrifying place to come. It wasn't a glorious place to come. But then he continues on in Hebrews in verses 12, or 22 through 24 and look at the contrast he makes. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are all enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you guys see that? But you have come. All right, he's, he's kind of taking and doing this thing a lot of the New Testament authors do, and He makes this future reality, which will absolutely be true, and bringing that into the present. He's saying you have come to the new Jerusalem, this new heavens and new earth that Haggai was pointing towards. You're already there by faith. And you have a new covenant mediator that is with you. Where you once thought that the glory days were at Mount Sinai, a place of fear and trembling and death, this place you have come to is a place of the presence of God, a place of peace, a place of joy and forgiveness. 
And verse 24 makes clear that our mediator himself is there. You see, Moses could go up a mountain and get the law, but he couldn't lay down his life for the sins of his people. Jesus came and shed his own blood so that not only could we come to Mount Zion, but so he can establish a new covenant, one that sets us free, one where the mediator himself lays down his life and sheds his blood so that forevermore we will not be dealt with according to our sins. Hebrews 8.6 says it this way, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Don't look back to the former covenant. Don't look back to the glory days. Again in 9.15, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the blood spilled on the cross by our precious Savior, it confronts us constantly trying to retrace and live in the past. But it also comes and it redeems us from all of our misplaced hopes and dreams. Like those in Haggai's day, we need not fear anymore because He is with us. And Jesus is our good mediator who laid down His life once and for all. We've been set free by this great and perfect sacrifice of the greater Abel whose blood cries out with a louder voice, not that I may go with you, I will go with you, who is seeming to go back and forth depending on the people's obedience but one who has crushed his own son, who now his son's blood cries out like Abel's, saying it is finished, that we need not fear. And even more importantly, this idea of shaking the nations and the earth, although that will happen once and for all at Jesus' second coming, as beautiful as that hope is, that's trying to get our eyes out into the the future glory of the new heavens and new earth, this idea of shaking happened also at the sacrifice of our mediator. If you look with me at Matthew 27, I don't think there's a slide for this one. That's my fault. Matthew 27, 50 through 51, Jesus is on the cross and he cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit. But then listen to verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. You keep reading, and all these bodies are raised, and this miraculous thing is happening, but what Haggai has in mind in Hebrews is a bit of Matthew here, that on the cross, the earth shook, and that temple, in a sense, is this picture of the new covenant promise splitting open where we once couldn't even touch the mountain where God resided. Now we come in with boldness and confidence because of the torn body of our Savior. And so he's saying the glory days are gone and they weren't that glorious. The cross of Jesus Christ ushered you in by his death and resurrection to the most beautiful reality for the present. And it's that you have unadulterated access to the glory and presence of God. 
And the good news is, while we experience this and enjoy this by faith now, the new heavens and new earth will come with Christ at His second coming, and it will no longer be a thing of faith. We will see Him by sight, and the people from Solomon's day who saw that temple in all its glory, the people in Haggai's day who saw this junky temple, and those of us who believe in the temple by faith, which is Christ, will all be gathered together. And as Revelation 21-22 through says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, the future temple that Haggai foretold about, the one full of glory, will be ours in the new heavens and the new earth. Where we struggle now to live and to love and to work and to eat and to be on mission and rejoice in the presence of the Lamb, all those things will be fully redeemed. The glory of God will cover the entire world. We will be in His presence. And even the little ordinary things that seem so difficult now will be such a joy then. The question I have left for us comes from Hebrews 12.25. He's trying to encourage the saints in that day, but I think it applies to us as well. When we think of our past and the present and even the future, can we hear Hebrews 12.25 when it says, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. You see, the same Lord that broke in in Haggai's day in the midst of their need in the time of rebuilding the temple is the same one who comes to us today and asks, will you hear my voice? Will you hear that the realities of the new covenant promises that you are forgiven really means you're forgiven? Those nights when you lie awake retracing all your sin and all your failures, will you believe that God has spoken when He says, I will not deal with you according to your sins? When we think that the past has something better to offer than the present and the future, will we hear His voice when He says, fear not, I am with you? You see, the call for us today in Fusion is to believe the wonderful promises of our Mediator. That we have come to Him now by faith to Mount Zion. And we are stumbling day by day home to when we will see Him by sight and will be enveloped in His glory and never again want to go back to those glory days, but will enjoy being in His presence forever. So let us be a people that keep our eyes fixed on Him and remind one another This is a community effort to remind one another as we make it home. Let's pray.